Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the Mark Boris Podcast. G'day. Uh, well, uh, hanging out with a couple of scientists here, so like professors, like full-on academics. We've got David and Mike. Uh, David's the Aussie, Mike's American, um, or American accent at least. And uh, they are quantum physicists. So just hang on and think about this. Quantum physicists and technologists, they're from the School of Physics at the University of Sydney. I've been out there to have a look at the new facility that's just been completed. Um, it's sort of, I guess, your trial running or a beta testing it or something like that, and you're going to launch it soon. Good morning. How are you going? Fantastic. Good morning. Thanks for having us. That's Dave. That's Mike. You can pick up the accents. Not everybody's going to understand what you guys got to say, but we are living in a world, a world, a global technology change. Everybody is now focusing on technology and how quantum physics can improve the way we live and various other technologies. The Australian government's got on the bandwagon. They're spending money. They've spent a lot of money at your, at your facility. Can you please explain to me? I'm going to go to you, David, first. Can you please explain to me what you two quantum physicists and academics are doing at Sydney University with such a big amount of money having been spent there by the Australian government? Yeah, many of your listeners will remember the birth of the internet and you can go back to the early 90s, think about how you did business and compare it to how things are today. Where did that change come from? It's, it's just such a different world. And it came from technology. It came from uh, ultimately basic physics that gave rise to new communication technology and a means of doing business in the way that we do it today. A similar change is coming, and uh, we're kind of in, I don't know, 1975, 1985, I don't know how to say it exactly, but for us as scientists, we're looking ahead and seeing that in the next decade, next decade and a half, there's going to be a massive transformation in technology. That transformation is going to be harnessing and, uh, to some extent, making use of totally new laws of nature that, at the moment, we don't make any use of at all in technology. So it's kind of hard to believe. You, you think, well, surely we know how the world really is. We know about electromagnetism. We know about thermodynamics. We know about all of these different things. Uh, but there's still an area of physics yet to be tapped, yet to be exploited to build new technologies and new businesses. That's coming in the next decade. Quickly just tell us, all of us, everyone here in the studio and everyone who's listening, what is quantum physics? Quickly. Quantum uh, physics is... 100 years old, and the key concept in quantum physics is, first of all, that nature is quantized, so that things come in discrete packets. It's not a continuous uh, amount of energy that's transferred from, from a light bulb, but little tiny 
packets of energy. And in fact, all of reality, all of nature can be divided into packets. That has implications. Uh, one of the implications, which is mind-bending, is that the world uh, has what physicists call a wave-like nature. So rather than think of uh, this studio table and desk as something that's a hard, solid object in a definite location, an aspect of quantum physics is that it's, it's not like that. It's more like something that's wave-like. And that realization uh, nearly 100 years ago has given rise to all kinds of other implications in understanding uh, every aspect of, of uh, nature. How do you see quantum physics in terms of the applications that you guys work with changing our lives? Yeah, it's, it's changed our lives over the last uh, century in all of the technology that we have. is based on actually quantum physics and quantum physics that was understood in the 30s. The, the interesting thing is, back then, 20s, 30s of, of last century, uh, a lot of very strange and weird properties became clear from this theory, but they were too weird to grapple with. People swept those ideas under the carpet and just calculated and just built technologies like transistors and integrated circuits and lasers and CD players. And here we are, some hundred years later, going back to the original equations, the original concepts and saying, that stuff we swept under the carpet, maybe that's actually very interesting. Maybe that's meaningful for technology. It's super weird and we're still grappling and trying to get our head around it, but we're starting to realise that those weird concepts long pushed away are going to be extremely powerful for new technologies. You've obviously guys are onto some. Tell me about some of your sponsors. Like, who are the sponsors? I mean, you've got some pretty serious sponsors for this. Like, uh, is Google one of them or Microsoft or something? Who, who, who in the world is taking interest in what you guys are doing at Sydney University? So, uh, very broadly the field is attracting a lot of attention. And so you mentioned Google. Google sponsors a group at University of California. Uh, our work has been sponsored by Lockheed Martin, which is a, a big defense player in the past. Uh, David's work in particular is sponsored by... It's sponsored by both Microsoft and Intel Corporation. Right. So you're talking about some serious players. Yeah, these are, these are big global parties that are interested in what's going on in the field, but also what's going on locally. And Lockheed, I mean, they, you guys going to launch some sort of uh, missile from there? Or what, no, why are not at all. This? I mean, Lockheed, Lockheed is a really diversified uh, uh, technology company, and they were interested in how we can harness these weird rules of quantum physics in order to do new things. They wanted to understand kind of the basics of what they could do in the future because the applications we already have, the first application uh, of this kind of exploitation of weird quantum effects is so uh, ubiquitous and so powerful. It's global positioning systems. Tell us about that. Can you tell yeah, us about what this first application is? I mean, the first application is GPS. If you're, if you're you know, using Uber to get uh, to work or wherever, you've got a GPS chip in your mobile phone. And that works fundamentally because of really precise clocks and the ability to tell how long it takes for a signal to get to you wherever you are. Uh, GPS, with these really precise clocks, works as more or less the first application of uh, one of these exotic quantum effects called quantum superposition. So atomic clocks, clocks that are based on, on the internal physics of atoms, use this weird physics. Now, you don't think about it, but it's everywhere around you. This is, as, as I said, the first application of these more exotic quantum effects. And if the world has changed so much, think about all the commerce associated with uh, uh, geotagging your, your phone, uh, just based on this one application, the exciting bit is what comes next. So am I talking to like a couple of Einstein's? I mean, is, is Sydney University sort of out there when it comes to the rest of the world or... You know, are you just doing what everyone else is doing? Or do you, do, would you take a view that you are doing something really cool and really out there, like, that no one else is really looking at? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, 
it would be disingenuous to say we're the only people in the universe doing this kind of stuff. There is a global community of which we are part, but we are a very big part. Uh, so there are big funding programs that come from Australia and uh, from abroad, in particular in the United States. And the University of Sydney has probably the largest single footprint of any institution globally uh, associated with funding from these organizations. And you couple that with the, the linkages that David mentioned before from, say, Microsoft and Intel, and uh, we really are way at the top of the uh, pile. That's something to be we're proud doing of our best to be there. That's something to be proud about. And do the students get involved? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, we're passionate about education as much as we are research. And to some extent, I see our mission as training a new profession, a profession that does not exist at the moment. It's the quantum engineer. We're quantum physicists, but the next challenges are going to be how to go from physics to technology. And to do that, you need engineering. It's not really a, a regular engineer as you imagine one today. It's a, it's a person who is well-versed, steeped in the fundamental science of quantum physics, but can also build things and bring an engineering perspective. Those types of individuals don't exist. We're training them. We're, we're developing them. And I think a stream of those types of people will be very much part of what we, uh, the impact of what we're doing, as much as it is the technology. This is where the really exciting bit about uh, uh, the linkages to small business and the opportunities for small business come in. I mean, making some of the technologies that we're talking about will, will take decades. Uh, we're really at the ground level. But in other aspects, we're working to uh, build an ecosystem of people from engineering and science backgrounds, but also on the entrepreneurial side, who will play in that space. So David mentioned people being trained in this kind of new discipline. With that training, the idea is that they can take the spinoffs. And this is already happening today. We have relationships with, for instance, a small business called Moglabs in Victoria, uh, which has a lot of former students trained in this area and led by an, uh, an academic trained in this area, building new technologies, selling them with you know pretty serious uh, uh, turnover today, uh, based on uh, linkages to this community, right? So there are serious opportunity for new technologies in the near term uh, coming from people who are trained in the field. And, and just on, I mean, this is obviously, an, we keep hearing about Tel Aviv, what's going on there in terms of technology developments, particularly in software environments. We keep hearing about what's going on in Singapore as a technology hub, what goes on in Silicon Valley. What you're saying to us is that uh, you guys are part of something which is very important on a global sense and it's happening right here in Sydney, right here at Sydney University. Um, and it brings me to the whole topic of government sponsoring universities because, to be frank with you, it seems to me the, the best technologists will come out of university campuses makes sense because, you know, you've got academics, you've got students, you've got creative people, you've got time, you've got sponsorship, you've got money. Um, do you think the government could do more to sponsor technological development and innovation, probably better, yeah. out of universities? I, I, so, I'll, I mean, in my view, uh, the answer is clearly yes. And, I mean, it'll, it'll sound like, yeah, there's some academic saying he wants more money. And, and, of course, there's truth to that. But... There's a big gap in Australia uh, where the government could do a lot more, and that's in this idea of translational research. So we, we talk about, say, Silicon Valley and the things that are coming out of there with huge excitement, uh, and rightfully so. What we forget is that almost all of those products, or many of them, I should say, uh, were at some, port, at some point publicly funded, right? There are agencies in the U.S. like DARPA, uh, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, where I used to work, uh, that support advanced technology in software and hardware. Many of these developments happen in university labs, and then the students who've worked in those labs go and they start a company, right? That's, that's a, a, 
standard pipeline. With a new application, with with the technology. Absolutely. And working more on the commercial aspect as opposed to, say, perhaps a military application. Uh, What we don't have in Australia is that. We don't have this kind of critical funding in the middle stage uh, where we support via the public sector research that's highly applied, that's highly technological, and then give the opportunity to people uh, from these labs to go and commercialize them. That's a... a, Many years ago, I'm, not, I'm still involved, but the, the company that I'm involved in is technology business in Chicago, we had a subsidiary in Chicago, and that subsidiary, the guys who worked in that um, were all from Motorola, and Motorola, and these guys um, were engineers, and um, what they were always developing was um, new forms of communication through devices. For example, they designed the original Razor for Motorola, and they all left Motorola and they designed... The, uh, the, they did the first BlackBerrys for BlackBerry, and we had a black contract with BlackBerry doing designing their BlackBerry accessories for many years. They all they, but they didn't invent the technology that went into the Motorola first razor. But somebody else had invented this technology in a military application, and they took that military application and t- that, that that technology, the disruptive technology, and turned it into a disruptive business model. For Motorola, and of course, the Razor was the start of all these new phones. Yeah, I mean, look, that's that's a great example yeah. because everyone who's walking around with a mobile phone has a piece of military technology in their pocket. That's a mimic. It's a monolithic microwave integrated circuit. It was a government project from the U.S. That's right, and 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 I think for our listeners, I mean, what we're talking about is what is being seeded at the university where you guys are now in terms of quantum physics, which is totally different. What these guys, what I'm talking about here, but quantum physics, you're saying will um, uh, develop a some new technology which somebody in a lab or I mean in a commercial lab somebody might seize upon and turn into something some application which will change our lives mm. so I would Is go that what so, you're talking about, David? yeah I would go so far as to say that in 10 to 20 years from now if you're in a business and you're playing in the high-tech space you will need some knowledge uh, quite a deep knowledge of quantum physics I don't think it's going to be possible to, to uh, what really maneuver in that marketplace of the high-tech world the, the Silicon Valleys of uh, 2035 without being well versed in quantum physics it's going to be so disruptive that even if you're not in the field uh, yourself you're going to have to understand what the implications are what's possible so that you're not able to you know you're not getting swamped and that your uh, strategic plans there uh, are not somehow dwarfed by uh, a technology that just comes that's, out that's of a nowhere. really interesting point like so i was talking nick who's sitting over there listening to this intently um has been, we've been talking about computer science as a new course that would augment say a bachelor of business or bachelor of commerce or something today because in order to understand the way the world's commercialising, you you need to have a basic understanding of coding and developing technology, uh, developing software, and that and I actually talked about that yesterday in this um, Salesforce um, world tour that I was one of the panelists at. What you're saying is, hang on, Mark, you're you really got to go. There's another step, quantum yeah. quantum physics. So, so universities start sponsoring more quantum engineers or more quantum physics guys or or girls? I mean, what are you saying here in terms of the future of university education and schools within universities? So there's two challenges. One is quantum physics is mind-bending. And so you can't... What do you mean by that? So I don't think it's something that you can read in a book or, or on Wikipedia and then get it. I'm still grappling every single day with how to understand and interpret quantum physics, how to think about the next experiments and think about the technology. So it's not something like so many other fields. You mean it fucks you up a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. The other challenge that I would, would really see is that to go from where we are at the moment 
to seeing a technology developed, what is the environment, what is the framework to make that happen? Sure, you know, it's an ecosystem, it's got universities, it's got small business, it's got the big technology companies. But we're still at a stage where, to be honest about it, uh, as a scientist, we need to do experiments and some of those experiments are going to fail because we don't know what the answers are. This is not development, this is research. And part of research is, look, all I can do is promise you to do the best job to try something, but it may not work. We're in the, in, the, in the regime at the moment where what we're learning is is because we're doing experiments that don't work. And so it's pretty hard to start a company or transition into a technology based on a whole you know, collection of failed experiments. But that information is valuable. Where do you do those types of experiments? What is the framework to try out totally new ideas and have them fall on the floor and then move forward and pick up the pieces. I think that universities are going to play an incredibly important role as the framework, as the sort of environment in which it's okay to fail because you're doing research rather than trying to make profit uh, and, and satisfy those drivers. It's going to be a combination of, of, of universities, big industry, small industry, startups and so on, but we're going to need universities agile and able to do things that are hard, uh, but able to fail. Yeah, so the other part of this... Sorry, that's Mark. Go on and play on here, say. The, the other part of this is is the idea that I talk about sometimes, separation of timescales, right? When we craft public policy around innovation, we need to think not over the next three or four years, we need to think over the next 30 or 40. So David's talking about, you know, what comes after Silicon Valley in 2035. We're talking about decade-long investments, decade-long uh, projects working on bringing this technology to reality. Uh I think it's understandable that you can't ask a small business to have no revenue for 15, 20 years. So then you might say, well, what if we step back and we ask the big business to do that? Well, you can even look at these amazing examples. Boston Dynamics, it's a robotics company. They make robots that walk upright and trudge through the snow and they fall over and get back up. Bought by Google and Google is now selling that company. Leaked internal documents from Google indicate that the reason they're doing it, or at least one of the reasons, is that they're concerned they won't be cash flow positive for 10 years. The horizon is not long enough. If Google, with infinite money, can't even invest in something that takes 10 years, who else is going to do it? It's only universities at this stage. And which is, takes us right back to government then, because government's got to get off their tush and start to make sure that they understand that. It's quite an interesting point. You, you, I think, Dave, you raised about uh, failure. Um, there is a far greater failure rate at the experiment level than there is at uh, small business startup level. And if you... The bottom line is this, and this has been written about many, many times by economists. If you want to build, and obviously our objective is to build an anti-fragile economy, we must have an anti-fragile economy. By definition, you've got to have fragility in the process of getting to anti-fragile, So, because the two balance each other out. Wherever you have anti-fragility, you're going to have fragility. And fragility uh, sort of reeks of failure. You must, if you want the, 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 the first one anti-fragile, in other words, a, a robust economy, you've got to be prepared to invest in the fragility on the way to building the anti-fragile. So, and our government's got to get this. And unfortunately, government's thinking four-year terms, or maybe two terms of four, which is eight years. But no one thinks in 20. And what you're saying to us now is quantum physics may be giving us a longer, will give us a far greater change in the way we live but it's probably going to be a far longer lead time than anything we've ever seen before. Well, it's already starting. I mean, the, the applications are already coming. The small business spinoffs are already here. Big corporations, like we talked about before, are already investing. So on the next five to ten years, things will start. But the, the major changes are really down the track. Uh, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to have to say, I could talk to you guys forever. I'm, I'm, and I'm actually going out to University of West Sydney to the uh, Faculty of Science and I'm doing the graduation day today. And I'm going to actually talk about what you guys are doing, how important science is to this country, to the world. By the way, for those listeners, these two guys, 
they look like they could be my sons. They're that young. I mean, they're not they're not sixty. They're not look. There's no Albert Einstein lookalikes here. These guys are both young blokes, and obviously super smart guys, and particularly committed to what they're doing, and uh, extraordinarily enthusiastic. And I wish you all the best when you formally launch is it next week. It is next Wednesday. Next Wednesday, and uh, like I went through there, I would like to go. I probably need to go through about ten more times to get my head around it because I walked out there and I just. I, you blew my mind. I don't know what I was thinking about. I was sort of exhausted after when you showed me, showed me and talked to me about everything. But good luck. And uh, I'm glad this is happening in Australia and I'm glad it's happening at Sydney University. Sorry. Thanks very much. Thanks so much. Okay, we're now going to talk to Tiffany. Uh, Tiffany was the first winner of the Uber pitch, the one-minute pitch that we did with Investable back in December last year. Is that right, Tiffany? Yes. Um, That was a a competition which we held. I think there was 100 um, Uber pitchers coming in for the day. We drew them out of the 10,000 people that put their their names up there to um, pitch to us. Um, And uh, Tiffany, at the end of the day, it was a long day, a tough day, and she (laughs) won all the pitch competition. Um, And it's hard to pitch your business in one minute. In fact, extraordinarily hard. Um, And I'm... So, and part of the prize for winning it was apart from spending a, a day of boot camp day with uh, Cruel Prices Business Investable, um, part of the prize was to come onto the show. Um, and uh, so we're going to talk about Tiffany, talk to Tiffany now, and she's going to tell me about her business. So I'm going to keep the two scientists here as well. <laughs> I mean, it's totally outside of your game, but it'd be interesting to hear what you guys got to think. If you've got anything to say, you know, jump in and say it. Uh, so Tiffany, tell us about Dressed for Sale. Okay, so... Dressed for Sale is a a company that does pre-sale styling for the real estate industry. And there are hundreds and hundreds of people that do this in the country. What we've done, however, is we've created different technologies to enable us to do same-day quoting and next-day delivery. Our competitors take up to a week to quote and up to three or four weeks to deliver. So we're a little business that started in Adelaide two years ago and now we've done 600 homes um, and we are trying to scale Australia-wide. So our plan is to scale at least 50 franchises across the country. In the okay, so, so Dress for Sale is, uh, is web-based? Uh, no, no. So, so, so how do I get onto your website? Yeah. Okay, so yes, I have a website. Yep. Um, how it works is that we, uh, we used to be 95% agent-driven giving us leads. We've now targeted vendors directly. So either an agent with a client and or a vendor will ring us up and say, can you come to our house, look at our property and tell us what, what you would do to help us get it to market. So what we do is we put in higher furniture. We do painting, flooring, electrical, which our competitors don't do. Most of them only have furniture. So we do a complete product that helps people sell faster for a better and price. Like, and do, how do you gauge whether, I, you know, like let's say i got an apartment in the Astor at the moment for sale. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of Nick's brothers used to live there, so I had to sort of go and rip everything out and repaint it and sort it out. Um, Alexander, <laughs> it's absolutely sterile because it was Alexander, which is the worst. Um, and uh, but like, how would you? How would I gauge whether or not you improve the value of my property, or, or or is it just making it saleable? Okay, so because we have been, we've got six hundred houses under our belt now in a very short period of time. Clearly, we're getting repeat business, so we're pretty confident about what we're doing. There is actually a science to it. The physicists might like to know, but um, be careful. <laughs> they're writing formulas now. I can see it. There'll be in a wave head. going through. But look, we've I've employed people who come from not the styling background. I've actually employed people who come from more of an aesthetic background because eighty six percent of people are going to view their property for their very first time on the 
net. So it's not about styling a house like people traditionally have done to show off artefacts. It's actually to show off the house. So we now know what sells and what attracts people's eye very quickly. We have a very specific formula that we put in place. And it's not to have loads of things. It's to draw, draw your eye to the money shots, if you like. And what are the money shots? Is it light? Okay. What are we talking about? It's definitely light. I won't surprise you that most painting is going to be white. It needs to be really neutral. It needs for people to imprint their own Feelings, they want to see their own house in there, not yours. Nobody wants to see personal artefacts. We take out any religious So, artef- in other words, you don't have a whole lot of African sort of masks and shit Definitely like that. no African yeah. masks and things like that. Um, de- but also to have things, little secrets like if you've got a four-bedroom house and you've got a gym and an office, for example, in two of those bedrooms, we will always, always style them as bedrooms. People have no imagination. They'll go, no, but it's only two-bedroom. So you want to maximise what it is that the market wants. And so we do quite a lot of research on that. We know what the market wants. So some of our properties sell offline in six hours, uh, which is, and we've got many, many. Un, um, so you're s- underselling yourself, Tiffany. I think when you sort of say you're called dress for sale, or you say you, you're not just stylizing, you're actually um, changing the style, making sure that it is sort of meets the um, lowest common denominator of buyers. In other words, you, and you take out the, the personalized stuff. You, you take out things out of there that um, someone says, "No, but I love that room. It's all red." You know, I painted it red. I mean, I've been in a place which, where the rooms have all been painted a different colour and I went, whoa, fuck. <laughs> and uh, what you're doing here is you're using your experience. So you build, you've build, you built up some sort of stats. Do you have like a – I mean, have you got all this sort of formularised or do you guys we, write it down? Have you got a no, manualised? kept it. So we know out of our 600 houses, only 7% of them have gone over our five-week hire period. Our average, high, our average turn, and it's Adelaide, it's a much slower market, is four weeks – but if you really drill down to it, it's probably one or two. The four weeks are taken up by people who've got an unrealistic um, impression of what their property should be, so it might drag on. But we flick houses very quickly. So we actually, we've got an ad on Nova and it always says, you know, we're not real estate agents. We're, oh, my God, I want this house agents. So we definitely <laughs> work in tandem with both agents and vendors to get that fast result. It might be your, your name, OMG, I want this house agent. That's <laughs> it, pretty cool because uh, there's a lot of turnover real estate in Australia, so you're... Adelaide-based. Adelaide-based. You want to franchise this now across Australia? So we have our little business has – we've paid for all of the um, franchising ingredients, if you like. So Paul Wheeler, who started Cartridge World and sold 1,550 of them, he's our franchise strategist. So he's worked with us to create our offering. So Dressed for Sale is currently for sale. So I've got people around the country that I'm working with at the moment to, to help. We've got someone that's about to hopefully start Noosa in August – but we're also seeking um, corporate funding, and this is where the difficulty for us has lied. Shareholders, as, you mean? Uh, well, no, we've got. I'm pitching the investable, but um, and I've got different angels that I'm talking to. But we would also we're trying to get finance at the moment because we'd like to have some company owned ones ourselves. We're busting right. to get to Melbourne and Sydney, right. um, and prove the replication so that that will only enable a faster scale of our franchise. So, in terms of your um, your build, building a business, you come up with the idea sitting there in Adelaide because obviously there was a problem. You saw the demand or need. You come up with a solution. Mm-hmm. You then. Um, Tested in Adelaide, so to speak, which is yes. actually quite a good place to test things because often people test things in Adelaide. Yes. Um, and then now you're rolling it out. What was your biggest challenge? Our biggest challenge at the moment is speed to get to market. So because we've got different angel investors around us, that takes time. What we are looking for at the moment, what we're trying to find at the moment is funding. But because we've sold our house and our cars and everything, we don't have any assets. Money. Money's been it's your getting biggest unsecured money. funding. Yep. David, David's actually, you know, I don't know whether we're going to get a quantum physics um, um, <laughs> solution here, but what do you reckon, David? Tiffany, I was really interested in how you put it uh, that uh, you try out certain things, you know, personal artefacts, and that doesn't work. 
How do you know that it doesn't work? How do you actually test for something like that? Would it be would it be crazy to imagine that you would put artifacts in there and watch people run away? Uh, is is it to that extent a scientific experiment? It's kind of hard to get the statistics and the data that you would need to really have a successful business. I think without spending a lot of money failing and saying, well, I know what doesn't work. If we because we're a small business, we don't have a lot of money to fail, so we just had to succeed really quickly. And so, interestingly, whether it's a whether it's a Buddhist, a, a Buddha, or any type of artifact, and we we deal with a lot of Chinese clients as well, you you just can't assume what appeals to some people. Some people are quite spooked by different things. So the less personal it is, the less anything to do with religious people have quite a, a strong feeling about not wanting to be. There are people who got upset because we had cow hides and they're vegetarian. Mm. You know, is, it, so, is it their opinion that you, you kind of sample or is it that they just don't buy? Uh, they actually don't buy. Right. They, they truly don't. So we have formulated, and, and I actually don't do the styling. I've got a series of stylists that do it. But they now know, they know what sells. Um, and so when I talk about the formula, it's the formula that is specific to us that we know that, that works. They'd be able to describe it better than me. I think David's made a really good point here too, by the way. I mean, as a, as a potential investor, for example, I would respond... If you could show me scientific yeah. evidence data, yeah, as opposed to, and I don't, you may have already done this, as opposed to an opinion or an anecdotal thing, um, if you said to me, Mark, um, here's a, here's our set of assessments, mm-hmm. and uh, this is these are the responses. People uh, actually said, no, I'm not going to buy it because of the following reason. There's a there's a cowhide there. Uh, if you want to fund that, please <laughs> give me two million bucks and we will do that. So it, it requires that sort of funding? <laughs> no. no. We're, at the moment, we're seeking about half a million just because that will help us um, come into a corporate, uh, sorry, have a company owned one in Melbourne or but something. Are you trying to get, so, but are you trying to sort of adopt what David's saying? So no, you're looking for funding to get to yourself to a position where you can actually r- roll out this information? Absolutely. Okay, good. Yep. So to, you're, to replicate. I think we're you've got to be to scientific, scale. to be honest with you. Yep. Look, I understand what you're talking about, about the research, but... I guess the best litmus test we have are the repeat uh, real estate agents because they're in it all the time. There's a reason that they come to us because we help them flick houses faster for a better sale. I don't think we need to overcomplicate it, for it tr- truly. There's a, there's a, I guess it's an instinctive thing to a degree, but what we have created um, in the big melting pot of those 600 houses is we really do know the psyche now. And again, the girls would describe it better than me because they're on the ground, t- I'm not. T- Tiffany, I'm going to wind up, but sure. I, 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 want, I, I actually think there's a really good point made by our two scientists over here. We talked about intellectual property. That is something you have that could be unique compared to anyone else's in your industry. And also the um, the integrity of the intellectual property, which is the, you know, the process of how you arrived at these conclusions in a scientific way. I know as a seller, if someone sells me something, just talks to me, I get it. But if I'm a seller and you say to me, you don't have to show me the IP, but you say, we have IP which has proven blah, 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 blah. And if I get a sense that it is correct... I'm more likely to go with you than I am, for example, with some agent or some other punter down the road who's yep. what I call a stylist. Yep. Um, I, I definitely think a stylist is a good idea because I'm a busy guy and I, I don't have to go through that process. But I see all stylists as having just an opinion. Now, yep. what you're saying, I think I, my, what I'm getting from you is you, you're beyond that. You're mm-hmm. f- far more than a, an opinion. But I think it'd be great if you were then trying to find your corporate investors to be able to prove it up yeah. and say, look, this is better than an opinion. I've got intellectual property and yeah. it's actual real yep. outcomes. Yep. David, you... Can I finish up with one thing? Yeah. You've just put something in my mind. It must be possible to write a program yep. that searches the web, yep. looks at photos of houses, yeah. and then logs 
the, you know, what is the colour palette, for yeah. instance, as a yeah. variable, versus how long did it take to sell and what price did it go for, and how much data there is already without spending a cent out there to make that correlation. To, to sit down with a buyer and say, here, I've studied it. If you have uh, this colour anywhere that it features in your photo, the time to sale is going to be longer. I think this would be great. And this sounds like a second cap raise. So once we scale and we want to go into America, it sounds like an awesome idea. You're going to do it. Good Absolutely. on you, Tiffany. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Okay, so we, we, we haven't done this for a while. We've now got a, a, a picture. Um, so we've got Taryn Williams. So she's from the right fit. She's going to pitch to us, so I've asked Tiffany to stay on with Mike and David, and uh, Taryn's going to pitch her business to us. She's got eight minutes. We're going to give her eight minutes worth of feedback, and um, I'm looking forward to hearing what you've got to say, Taryn. What, give me, a, give me a story. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I wanted to give you a little bit of background first. I've never been one to shy away from a challenge and doing things differently. At 15, I decided I was going to learn how to fly a plane. I insisted I couldn't wait any longer, despite the fact I couldn't even drive a car yet. My patient mother would drive me 45 minutes to the local airfield and watch me hand over my hard-earned waitressing money to learn how to fly a single propeller Cessna. My very first solo flight, wearing my bright white high-top Skechers shoes, was a success, and it taught me the value of persistence early on. At the same time, I started my career in the modelling industry. I spent the next five years working, both internationally and here, and got to know the industry really well. It offered me some great opportunities, but there was also some things that really jarred with me in the industry. Why were agents so awful to their talent and to their clients? Why were there so many inefficiencies and inequalities? And why would models have to wait months to get paid? I couldn't understand why they wouldn't embrace the um, technology to expedite the booking and casting process. Surely it's not that hard to build an agency that works for everyone and within that premise thrive. The result was the launch of my first company, Wink Models, in 2007. In the nine years since, we've grown to one of the most respected talent agencies in Australia with offices in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane and over 650 models Australia-wide. I built the very first industry app to manage our extensive database and booking schedules for our 650 models. By embracing technology, we've been able to scale the business nationally and have seen continuous growth for the last nine years. Technology and respect have been the hallmarks of our business. It was working in the development of this app and technology that led me to question how my domain knowledge could be better applied. How could I solve the new problems that I was seeing in the industry and how could I apply my knowledge and skills in a global play? The result has been the launch of my latest business, The Right.Fit, a new online platform that's going to disrupt the modelling industry in the best of ways. Put simply, it's an online marketplace that connects talent and clients directly. We have models, actors, photographers, makeup artists, stylists, and social media influencers. The Right Fit aims to cut out the middleman, the agency, and put the power back in the hands of the people it belongs to, talent and clients. So why are we doing this? Well, the industry is changing. The use of technology in people's day-to-day life is much more prevalent, and the, we've designed the Right Fit to get in front of the curve. Technology is no longer just an enabler. It's a creator of opportunities. And while the modelling, creative and casting system has been around for decades, it was ripe for disruption. It was archaic and it needed to change. One of the most popular questions I get asked since launch is, why would you disrupt your own industry? Why would you potentially cannibalise your own existing business? The response is pretty easy. You've got two choices, innovate or die. The fastest way to go backwards is to stand still. In this time, you need to disrupt or be disrupted. 
We all know budgets are getting tighter and that the type and diversity of talent in campaigns is changing and that snackable bits of digital content are replacing traditional big spend TVCs and print campaigns. We know brands are looking for ways to connect with social media influencers and use them to amplify their message. Just as we know it can be hard work dealing with traditional talent agencies who can be the pain point in the process with slow turnaround times and inflexibility on rates. The right fit is designed to change all of that. It's a technology-based tool that streamlines the whole booking and casting process and makes it easier and more cost-efficient to book talent. It deals with the latent supply of talent in the industry. We have a plethora of talent who want work, just as there's clients that need them. Let's connect them directly. As we continually improve them in the Australian market, we're also planning to scale geographically. 30 seconds. We've got a team in New York and we're looking to launch there in quarter one of 2017. From a talent perspective, they can create a profile online with videos, photos, descriptions and experience. From a client side, when they need talent, whether it's models, makeup artists, photographers, they can search using filters or they can post a job to the job board and have them beat a path on to their door. Okay, thank you. We're Tinder for talent. Quite simply. Tinder for talent. <laughs> That's fantastic. No, is, that, is that what you're talking about? Tinder for talent. In other Look, words... Yes, it's a marketplace, but it also has an inbuilt, a lot of inbuilt technology. So it's got SaaS platforms. It's got... Okay, you've got the tech. I, yep. I get that. So um, and I don't know why I'll come back to that. Um, mm-hmm. But really what you're doing is you're saying to... You're, you're, you're doing what Uber does. You're doing what Tinder does. You're doing whatever. You're aggregating and pushing out the intermediaries. So you're disintermediating. Absolutely. Which is, you know, what disruption does. So uh, can just... I want to wind back a little mm-hmm. bit. So Wink, that's your business. That's my business. It's still your business. Correct. And you've got 650 talent on, yes. online. So, and um, so that's something you've been – I mean, I don't know who the modelling agency are in, are in Sydney. I used to many years ago. But these days <laughs> I'm sort of a little bit behind that stuff. Um, uh, is that like – is it a well-known modelling agency brand? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've got offices in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. Okay, we've right. Been... And then um, the right fit is – I don't really get the name, to be honest with you, but the right fit – Anyway, is is the the Tinder for models or the Tinder yeah? It's for about talent. finding the right fit for your brand. So if you're a brand like Coca Cola, you're looking for someone to star either in a TVC or a print campaign or as a social media influencer for an online digital oh, so it's got, content. So, so it's got that vamped can, style thing. The social media influencer is that right, Nick? The aggregation aggregation platform for yes for for putting a model who might be an influencer. Vamp purely do influence. Purely yeah, do influence, but you're you're incorporating that yeah, that vamp absolutely. influencer platform Understanding style. that models are no longer just booked because they're a pretty face; they have to have much more than that. So, so do you help a model, for example, or do you help one of your clients um, build up a social media uh, page platform? Blah blah blah. So that that person becomes an influencer, then through right. The right fit, fit. yeah. The right fit. Um, they can become an influencer to for someone like Coca Cola because you know they get seen drinking a can of Coke. Is, absolutely, is, is that what you're and doing? it's a- absolutely, and it's not just for models and influencers. We've got photographers, we've got stylists, we've got makeup artists, so we can execute your entire campaign. Okay, that's very cool. Uh, I've got three uh, great talents here, um, all of whom should be on your list. But uh, <laughs> guys, it's Question. totally outside of your environment. But uh, what do you reckon? It's a very interesting area. I th- one thing that came to mind is that when you connect people and take out that middle person, it's often the middle person though that really has the expertise. A lot of people don't know what they're looking for. If I wanted a model to uh, somehow make quantum physics look sexy, what would be the right model? What would be the right approach? I wouldn't know. And so I'd be looking for someone, I think, in the in, in the middle there to connect the talent to what I actually needed and was the right fit. How is your proposal there? How does it, how does it take care of that aspect? Absolutely. So the profile page for the talent, so they can upload not only photos, so it's not just about how they look. 
It does integrate their social following, so we can you can click through and view their socials, see what sort of messages are on brand for your market. They've got videos, they've got skills, they've got experience. It's a little bit like LinkedIn, so you can see the brands that they've worked with in the past, you can see what their expertise is. They can list their bio and their experiences, so you can really get to know them before you book them. There's also an inbuilt messaging system, so you can go back and forth with that talent and ask them questions, ask them what their experience is in quantum physics and if they might be the right person to, to be a part of your project. And I, I, I just want to make one, one, give you one view on that, David. And you know, with all respect to Fordo, who's sitting over there thinking, "What the fuck?" You know, she's going to disrupt my industry. Um, <laughs> but, but just by the way, you would never ask the manager of talent as to whether or not someone's good for your ad because they're always going to say, "Mate, are you serious?" Of course they are. And by the way, it's going to cost you extra as soon as you ask that because they know you're a wood duck. So and, and what you would ordinarily do, you would have someone internally to help you with that process <laughs> anyway. But Yeah, I guess yeah. that then I have to take that on internally yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and filter it. And yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah that, that, I think that's probably the answer to part of it. you've developed as a direct result of the change in social media, particularly in the last five years. So really I've got a number of friends that are mm. models and they work so hard now on their different Insta and uh, Facebook. Absolutely. And so that it doesn't really take a genius to look at a mo- their Facebook or their social media platforms mm. to get a feel of who they are. And it really puts the control back in their hands. So as a t- talent, they want to control and build their own brand. They want to have control over that. So they get to work as hard as they want to be able to promote themselves, build a brand, something that they can create and curate and earn money from. What about the what lunatics? What about the lunatics, uh, the ones you go, oh, my God, why did you put that on Facebook? Why did you put that on <laughs> Why did you put that on Instagram? I mean, do you manage them? Do, do, like, do you give them a pro- program and say, listen, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, do, do you give us a list of Absolutely, we've got a screening process, so before anyone joins the site, they, they go through a screening process and... But do you help manage them through the process, during the process? Like, you know, what are you doing? Are you kidding yeah, me? so there's, there's an educational platform inbuilt in, in the site as well, so we have um, educational videos, frequently asked questions that they have access to so they can learn and, and help them build their brands through that. We've got a great manager here. Fordo, come up here, mate. <laughs> come up here and jump in and ask some you, questions. Happy birthday. Yeah, happy, <laughs> happy, happy birthday. birthday. <laughs> come on. I think, it's a, uh, I think it's a great idea. We're fortunate with our management agency that we've got a, a, a wide variety of clients and they all seem to be at the very top of their tree. They wouldn't be suited for a, a side like this. And I, I've got 15 clients. I don't have 600. Absolutely. But I, I'm approached 30 times a day by talent who sit below that, that are with management agencies or with modelling agencies and they don't get the attention, their agents pretty much just wait for their, the phone to ring rather than being proactive. So I think it's a great idea. Just got to, I, I suppose, in terms of actual numbers of making sure you sort of cap it at a certain point that it's not, you don't end up with thousands and thousands of, of talent on there. Yes. Absolutely. There's a screening process, so you have yeah. to be a professional talent to join. Each profile of people that apply to join the site is is screened and approved before mm. they join. What's the business model? How do you make money? Yeah, absolutely. So we take it, we're a combine of a commission structure and a subscription model. So we charge a small commission on each side of the transaction, both to the client and to the talent. It's about 50% cheaper than if they use an offline. So cheap is important. So yep, accessible, absolutely. cheaper. Cheaper, yeah, faster okay. turnaround time. Faster times. turnaround. And then we charge a subscription model as well. So if there's a freemium model, talent yeah. can join the site. They have a limited functionality. It's a try-before-you-buy model so they can get to know the system when they're really serious about committing and building their brand and they can upgrade to a paid subscription, which is 10.95 a month. Okay. Is, is there an opportunity to 
maybe it's not what you want ultimately, but to get in bed with the agencies to begin with, to have this as a tool to help the agencies expand their access to talent and also expand the uptake of your platform? It's definitely something we looked at to start with, whether there was a softly, softly approach and going and onboarding agencies to start with. But I think true disruption happens when you connect a user and a, and a client directly. And I think um, that's where the power is in this model. Models and talent direct wanting, wanting to manage their careers and their profiles directly is the end game. And obviously social media has played a huge part in that. Them being able to build a brand and a brand story, it doesn't work if there's a middleman involved. How much are the agencies going to try to cut your throat at this point? It's a great question. It's a great question. We're yet to see. I'm sure it's going to happen. People are obviously always intimidated by new business models and, and disruption in a marketplace. So I'm sure it's something that, look, there's always going to be a place for traditional, as you said, offline um, <clears throat> agencies. If they're doing their job well and they're servicing their clients really well, absolutely there's always going to be a place for that. I just think it's, I just think it's another option. That's the yeah. That's what you're creating, which is good. And, and, and an under-service option. How old are you? 30. So how did you get, become so polished? <laughs> I mean, seriously. I mean, like, because, you. I mean, the assumption is models, blah, 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 you know, the usual assumption. So how did you get there? Worked very, very hard. I read a lot of books and I spent a lot of time working in my business and surrounding myself with good people. And that's why I wanted to come here and talk to you today is I think you've built some amazing disruptive businesses and, you know, you've had a really core focus on what you wanted to do and surrounding myself with good people and not ever being the smartest person in the room is very important to me. And for those people listening who are in startups, that's a, that's a big lesson. And what are you looking for? I mean, apart from being able to showcase what you've just launched three, three weeks ago, what are you trying to do? I mean, you're trying to raise money. Tiffany's trying to raise money. What are you trying to do? Yeah, so we've just started the courting process with investors. Um, so we're in some discussions now with some VC firms and some high net worths and family offices. It's definitely a path that we're looking to go down so we can um, grow really quickly. But it's more about strategic partners for us. Um, I would like to find the right people to come on board in, a, in an advisory capacity, strategic capacity. <laughs> it means you're eight minutes up. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and to really give us some guidance. So looking for some board members that could sit and steer and help us on this journey. Okay, wrap up, guys. Do you guys want to say something on the wrap? You are so polished. You're amazing. And oh, I love that you. you fly planes. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> Fantastic. Captain Taron. Captain Taron. <laughs> Mike. I'm at a loss here, right? <laughs> David. No, it's exciting. I think, uh, I think you're really pitching something that's obviously needed. So good luck. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. Okay, guys, it's been a great one. It's, uh, we've gone from wide across the spectrum of everything today and uh, it's one of the better shows. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thank Bye. Thank you. This has been the Mark Boris Podcast. You can follow Mark on Twitter, at Mark Boris, and find out more at markboris.com.au. Listener.